Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hey guys, I hope you have had a lovely weekend. Now, before we dive into it, I want to acknowledge you and thank you for taking the time and making the space in your already busy life to tune in today. You are absolutely amazing. Um, Today, we are talking all about women on the spectrum and being diagnosed later in life. And I'm speaking with Christy Forbes, who is an autism and neurodiversity support specialist and director of the Intunes Pathway. She is an educator, accomplished childhood behavioural and family specialist, and most importantly, parent to four autistic daughters. Christy herself was also diagnosed autistic at 33 years of age. Christy is a national speaker on topics ranging from autism and neurodiversity to parenting children with diverse needs. She is a passionate advocate for the neurodiversity movement and helps to create custom-made joyous lives for the extraordinary family. Welcome, Christy. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I am so excited. I have, you know what, I only stumbled across you quite recently on Instagram and instantly everything that you were saying just resonated with me. So I'm so excited to have you on on the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Now, we always start the podcast by hopping in this time machine and going back um, on a little journey. So I'd love it if you could talk to us about what growing up was like for you because you were autistic but you didn't know it. Mm, Yeah, good question, great (laughs) question. (laughs) I think if you asked any autistic adult what growing up was like, they'll say very challenging. Um, you know, I knew I was different. I always knew I was different. I didn't quite understand how or why. I thought there was something wrong with me and I think I mostly saw myself as a broken version of a neurotypical. And um, so I was always seeking, always seeking how to be different, always, you know, I want to be brutally honest about this. I I looked at faiths and denominations and religions and self-help books and courses and I sat with psychiatrists and psychologists and as a teenager I was suicidal. I was. Um, And, you know, I didn't, growing up, one of my saving graces was growing up in the country because my connection with nature, and many autistic people will say this, you know, it's just this beautiful sensory-based connection, this energetic, you know, resonance with the world. And I always found it really grounding and it was my safe place where I could breathe but also, you know, many of us um, are growing up in, in families where there are neurodivergent bloodlines. So there might be lots of people in our family history that are undiagnosed autistics and they just don't know. So we also consider the fact that we're just like mum or just like Uncle Brian or Aunt Jenny, she was anxious or, you know, Uncle Rod had a very dry sense of humour and would often offend people, that sort of stuff. So that would, that even more so led to me thinking, why am I so different? Because I think I was much more sensitive than most of my family members. I was hypersensitive to everything and I just felt on such an intense level. My depth of feeling was so intense that it was painful. So that was hard. With that, are you referring to emotional sensitivity or sensory sensitivities or both? All of it. <laughs> All of it. So when we say that autistic people are sensitive, oh, we mean like hypersensitive in every sense of the word. So emotionally, you know, my smell, my hearing, just 
everything right across the board, our bodies, our skin. And it's not the same for every person on the spectrum, obviously. It um, changes. But for me, I also have uh, sensory processing disorder, so there was that as well. And there was being academically gifted but not being able to learn in a classroom because I'm so easily distracted and always the joker. So to mask what I was feeling on the inside, I was the funny kid in class and always up the back running around, you know, doing crazy things. And I know my friends from high school might see this and just know exactly what I'm talking about. But I was so distracted by the energy of other people. Just having someone sitting next to me meant that I couldn't get any work done because I could feel their presence and I could hear everything. Like it was just so hard, so hard. Mm. And so what, what's it been like to be a late-identified autistic woman? Oh, transformational. Has changed my life. The first and most significant thing about it is that I can like myself. I can love myself unconditionally. I can understand that, you know, I'm not failing at life. I'm not inadequate. I'm not this person who, no matter how I try, I just can't get it right. Because when you grow up undiagnosed, these are some of the things that we think about ourselves. And, you know, as young people, we're comparing ourselves. So when you've been comparing yourself all your life to your friends and family and other people and you just feel like you're not measuring up, when someone says, when that psychologist said to me, you are on the autism spectrum, I cried. I cried because I grieved the life that I may have had had I known I was autistic. And I cried because of the relief to know that, gosh, I'm actually not doing anything wrong. I'm fighting against who I am intrinsically, innately, organically, and there's nothing that I ever could have done that would have changed any of what I've been fighting all my life so I could finally rest. Mm. And did that diagnosis come about because you had children diagnosed on the spectrum first and then had that realisation? Yeah, definitely. I remember... um, you know, there were lots of clues along the way, definitely. Being training for my teaching degree and, you know, doing this training about Asperger's back then and looking at all the characteristics and just thinking, oh, how is this Asperger's? If this is what Asperger's is, then everybody must have Asperger's. But realistically, no, just you, Christy, just you. Um, but, yes, definitely my children being diagnosed led me into reading things about autism and paying closer attention to my body and how I would regulate and how I would cope and then realising, oh, hmm, autistic. How did your family and friends respond to this diagnosis? Do you know what? I have no idea. I've never asked because I don't want to know. (laughs) I suppose when you told them in the facial expressions, were they shocked or was it for them like, oh, that makes sense or neither? Well, a bit of both really. Like, um, do you know what? It's helped to, my mum and I have always had a really turbulent relationship. We're very, very similar. And when I was diagnosed, I learned so much about it and I just went, huh, this is interesting. And so we started having this ongoing conversation about, you know, what autism is and how it might present in adult women. And so she's been learning as well. And it's great in that sense that it's brought a lot of healing to many relationships with others that I've had because I can see them in a different light and I can see things that I'm responsible for that I may have misunderstood or I may have been really blunt But there were lots of people that went, oh, yeah, we knew you were different, that makes sense. Or they went, well, you're definitely different, but autistic, are you sure? So, yeah, a range of responses. And do you think that plays into the fact that we have a lot of misunderstandings around autism, that people don't know what it is, so 
really? You're on the spectrum? Oh, no, you don't look like you are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and if we can just touch on you don't look like you are, you know, sometimes, sometimes autistic people know other autistic people, even when they don't know they're autistic. We are really focused on behaviour and behaviour is just a physical expression of the internalised experience of being autistic. So we move our body in certain ways to regulate or to feel more comfortable or safe um, or to express happiness or sadness. And so autistic adults like myself, many of us, we may not stim in public. We may not show you those physical byproducts of our neurotype, our autistic brains. We might do it behind closed doors or we've learned, you know, over our lifetime that that's not acceptable. There's been social consequences for a lot of our physical behaviour. So we've learned to lead on that and so we don't appear to be autistic or, you know, I've learned to make eye contact and I'm always thinking about it as I'm doing it. You know, is this too intense? Should I look away? Yeah, I should probably look away now. Oh, am I being rude because I'm looking away? Now, there's this constant process of thinking and analysing everything my body does in every moment of engagement with another human being. And people don't know that because it's invisible. It's in my head and in my heart. So, you know, this, these are a lot of the things that we miss about adults and we don't know that they're on the spectrum. But if we look at their coping, you know, there's alcoholism and drug addiction and eating disorders and comorbid mental health challenges. There's this whole other world attached to being an autistic adult that people don't know about. Mm. Can you share any more insight on that, like what it is like to be an adult on the spectrum? How is the world? How do you view the world? How is it different? I would say... um, I'm so connected and respectful and appreciative and grateful for the beauty, the beauty in the world. I'm drawn to beautiful people, places and things and I'm really adversely affected by things that aren't so lovely. So it's a very human thing to be angry or to be sad but if I'm in an environment where there's an angry person I internalise that as being my fault, that I'm responsible for that and I take on their emotional experience as my own and that's often referred to as being empathic but it's a very common thing for people on the autism spectrum to do. Um, I, I still feel at a depth that is almost unimaginable. So my feelings, when I'm sad, I'm not just sad, I'm completely consumed and disabled by that feeling of sadness. So I'll find it hard to get on with my day if I'm feeling sad. If I've got something important on in a day, like an interview like this, you know, as much as I love it and enjoy it, the energy around it means that I have to make sure I've got nothing else on in my day so that I can do this and then I can recover. And when I say recover, it's not about this being a terrible thing to do. It's fantastic. But emotion and energy, so much of our energy goes into the things that we love to do as well as the things that we find difficult to do and we always need recovery time. And the world doesn't quite always understand or accept that about adults because there's an expectation that we'll just cope, we'll just put our big girl, big girl pants on and we'll just get on with life. And, you know, we do that and we try that and then we might burn out. So, yeah, it's difficult to be that person in a world that doesn't quite have all the information about, you know, what, what it is that we contend with. Mm, absolutely. I want to dive into the differences between females and males on the spectrum. How... Do they present differently? We haven't really spoken about this on the podcast before and I thought you'd be the perfect person to get on to have a chat to us so parents out there who do have girls on the spectrum um, can get a little bit more insight from a woman on the spectrum. Okay, sure. It's a really good 
question and a really good topic. Um, so I think it's important to be clear about this first. There is no real internalised difference for anybody of any gender. You know, people identify as all kinds of genders now. We're a gender diverse community, especially the autistic community. A lot of us are gender diverse or gender fluid. So the internalised experience of being autistic, there's no real significant difference across gender. But what you were saying about how it presents can be significantly different, yes. So that falls in line with society's um, perpetuation of gender roles or stereotypes and how we've been raised, particularly adults, because, you know, we come from a generation where little girls should be ladies and sit a certain way and behave a certain way. So, you know, if I think about primary school and the school environment, it would be more acceptable for a little girl to be spending her lunch break in the library reading books. Most people wouldn't bat an eyelid at that because girls by nature are received as often, you know, having a more subtle energy and being more quiet and more socially acceptable, more nurturing. So the expectations of little girls are very different to the expectations of little boys. Little boys, um, you know, in my schooling years would be involved mainly in sporting groups. So the bell for lunch would go and all the boys would go and kick a footy. If you didn't fit into that, if you weren't inclined to enjoy or engage in sports, then you would be seen as different and it would be obvious. And that's just one example. So, you know, we've only got to look at the history of children diagnosed as autistic and it was believed for a long time that it was predominantly a male disorder. So we're learning now that actually females, a lot of females are also autistic, but our presentation is different. So, you know, what I see a lot of and what I have seen a lot of in my work as a specialist with families are little girls who might be anxious, who might be gifted learners, who might not readily share their feelings for fear that they'll upset others. They may feel responsible for the emotions of others and the experience of others, like I was talking about before. Um, they can be quite nurturing and taking responsibility for everybody around them, wanting to solve everybody's problems and fix everything. They might have a great need for controlling people, places and things to make themselves feel safer. And we just get really, really good at eye contact and engaging and connecting with other people because, in my experience, there was this expectation that as a female, I would have to be really good at that to survive in the world, connecting with other people. And I was so, look, I was so bad at sport as a kid. I hated it. I loathed it. And I feel so sorry for any child on the spectrum who has had that experience too. Some of my children, it's painful. It's painful to not fit into what all your peers are doing because then, you know, we work so hard at not being found out. We work so hard even when we don't know we're autistic. We don't want other people to know who we really are or we just want to fit in, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think girls are better at imitating those socially appropriate behaviours and much better at masking than the boys. And that's sort of what I've read from the readings of people on the spectrum when they talk about it. That's what they say is that they are much better at showing um, this mask, someone who they're not. And, and from what I've read, that can be really damaging to autistic people. Yeah, and it doesn't quite fit in also with this myth that autistic people don't feel empathy because women, you know, that stereotype again or that expectation, that gender role is that we will be nurturing and caring and kind and giving. And, you know, there are a lot of women who will act that out but not so much feel it or there will just be 
people who will fit that role of being nurturing and caring and kind and loving and people will think, well, you, and I hear this all the time, you can't be autistic because, you know, you're real, I've had said to me, you're too warm, you're too social. But actually being too social is something that I've, being social is something that I've learned through observation of watching my peers and practising and being warm. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that, to be honest. Autistic people are often beautiful, warm human beings. Mm, mm, it's so interesting and it's such an interesting topic to dive into because there are so many just misunderstandings around it, I think, and I think it does take people like yourself who are out there and talking about it and bringing some um, different perspectives to it and perspectives that are really valid because you are on the spectrum and you are living and breathing it. So I think that's really important. Um, Thank you. What are some of the challenges that you've had to learn to cope with and navigate as an autistic person? Mm, Emotional regulation is a big one for me. People, that never goes away. (laughs) You know, we might mask it better. Um, We might present, you know, we're not having tantrums in public. We're not having meltdowns in the presence of, you know, other people. But we're still, I'm still having meltdowns, trust me on that, behind closed doors. And, yeah, that's really, really hard. Like I was saying before, sadness isn't just sadness. It's being consumed by the emotion. And, you know, I'm 40 this year and I've spent my life trying to find solutions for not being too sad or too excited or too angry or too happy And at the end of the day, I just have to accept that this is how I am and I actually respect and appreciate that. But it is challenging. It's really challenging. What would a meltdown look like for you? Yeah, so a meltdown could be a range of things. Um, so I, when I feel a meltdown coming on, usually it's because I'm really overwhelmed. I've had, and you know what? I am in this moment going to take responsibility for this. I'm still learning because I was diagnosed six years ago, so I'm still learning about my limits, what I can handle, how much I can handle, and that's, that takes a lot of trial and error. So I will still go into denial about being autistic and go, oh, I can handle that and that and that. Yeah, I'll do that at 11 o'clock tonight and I'll do that at 4 o'clock tomorrow morning. And, you know, it'll go well for about half an hour and then I will find myself just feeling so tense, my entire body feeling tense. I can't cope with noise anymore. My headphones go on. I'm extremely tactile defensive, so don't touch me. Please don't stand too close to me. Don't come near me. And then I find I'll be pacing my home and deep breathing to the point where I nearly pass out because my breathing is so strong. So I'm trying to regulate. Um, Now, if my children are in the home with me, obviously this isn't something that they're exposed to and I've had to work really hard at that as well. So I might go into my room, into the closet and just do some deep breathing, scream into a pillow, many of the same strategies that most of us use when we're stressed. But, yeah, so it could be that. It could be a shutdown as well. So um, just not being able to speak anymore, not being able to think anymore not being able to process information or just losing a handle on what's going on around me. It's like the world closes in. And this doesn't happen often for me because I manage my life in such a way that um, it supports me, my environments support me, my lifestyle supports me. But like I said, trial and error and there are things that I will be affected by and it will be a new learning experience for me. Mm. Now you're autistic and you're raising four autistic daughters. I would love it if we can explore this. What 
does the household look like? What is life like for you? And do you think it makes it easier or harder being autistic yourself, raising four autistic daughters? Obviously, you have a lot of insight, but it would have its challenges as well. So can we explore that? Yeah. I've got no idea whether it makes it easier because I've never been non-autistic. So (laughs) good um, point. (laughs) (laughs) I've only got, I thought I was for a long time. I thought that, you know, I wasn't autistic and um, that was really hard. That was really hard. I think being diagnosed did change that for me, my parenting, because there was a period where I went, Ah, this is why I understand this behaviour. Because I used to think, okay, if I'm not autistic, how do I understand what my children are doing? You know, they might be repeatedly clapping their hands in a certain way and getting really frustrated and I just get they're trying to achieve a certain pitch in the sound of their clap. And I just used to think, how do I know this? That's obviously because I was the same as a child. Our house, what does it look like? What does life look like? You know, it's up and down. It's a roller coaster. We laugh a lot. Humour is so important to us, you know, having a sense of humour. Not getting snowed under with doom and gloom narrative. Not, and this is probably a really big challenge for autistic people. When something happens in my world that I find difficult to cope with, my brain has this tendency to expand that out into this universal force. So rather than one person having said something that upset me, I'll go, everybody hates me. Or, you know. Catastrophizing. Yes, absolutely. So I can get quite catastrophic in my thinking. Um. So I really have to make a conscious effort of reminding myself this is just an isolated incident. It's going to be okay. Now, when you're raising children who are autistic and they have challenges and your heart goes out to them and sometimes, you know, I feel quite powerless because there's a lot of things that I just have to help them ride the wave of, um, constantly reminding myself and my children This is just for now, just for today, just right now, just this moment. It may not be the same tomorrow, but let's not even go there. Let's not even think about tomorrow at this point. Just stay centred, grounded in this moment. What can we do right now to support ourselves? So there's a lot of coming back to the moment, living in the moment. Sometimes it's really challenging. Sometimes we have days where... I don't, you know, I get to the end of the day and I'm tactile defensive and I'm on the verge of a meltdown. And then there are days where, you know, more often than not, I I know this is cliche and I know people say this all the time, but uh, I just, I ask myself all the time, why me? Why do I get to have this incredible experience of life where, I'm raising these four amazing autistic human beings. It has opened up this vortex for me where I get this experience that other people don't get. And it's not always easy, but it is always, always rewarding, always. Mm. That is such a beautiful perspective because, like you said, a lot of parents will buy into this doom and gloom narrative um which is easy to do because like you said um you know even on the internet looking up things as soon as you type in autism a lot of negative things can come up um and what i love is that you do um celebrate autism in your own ways and this sort of leads into the neurodiversity movement so i'd like to talk a little bit about that what it actually means and, um, yeah, how you celebrate autism. Okay. So the neurodiversity movement, um, it's often really misunderstood. It is a movement, um, you know, for people who identify neurodiversity encompasses everybody really. So neuro meaning brain and diversity obviously meaning all kinds of people. So it covers everybody. 
Within that movement um, is, you know, the neurodivergent community. So neurodivergent meaning anything that deviates from what we consider typical. I don't think that exists. But anything that isn't what you would expect a person to be. So, you know, that can encompass all kinds of things, ADHD, autism, bipolar, lots and lots of different um, neurodiversities. So what I love about the neurodiversity movement is that it sees, for me, because I'm autistic, I'll talk about autism, obviously, it regards autism as a difference rather than a disorder. Now, when people hear that, they think, you know, okay, it's, it's all well and lovely to romanticise autism, but what about the challenges? And they think that the neurodiversity movement completely dismisses and disregards the fact that we have challenges. And that could not be further from the truth. So we absolutely um, acknowledge, recognise and accept that there are many challenges. And, you know, we know this because this is our lived experience. And we... I, I read so many articles written by professionals... Um, in particular psychologists who, you know, don't agree with the neurodiversity movement because they have this understanding that we go, no treatment, no therapy, nothing. And it's not true. What we do advocate for is supporting a person, supporting a person. So rather than normalising them, actualising a human being, taking their strengths and working with those we move away from compliance therapies or therapies that seek to fix and change or correct a person from being autistic and we work in alignment with autism acceptance. And I think that people are scared by that because they're afraid for their children's futures and they think that the neurodiversity movement only really suits people who identify as autistic like me, people who are considered high-functioning, no-functioning labels in the neurodiversity movement either. Autism is autism. And some of our most excellent, greatest advocates are non-speaking with significant support needs and full-time carers who are able to communicate their thoughts through a whole range of um, assisted communication. So... It really embraces autistic people. It's a community for people to feel good and positive, to have a positive autistic identity. Mm. And while we're on this topic, I do want to talk about person-first language because, you know what, it's really interesting. When I went to university, I specifically remember being taught person-first language. Um, We were taught how important it was to respect the person before the label. So because the disability is only a small part of the whole person. And when we say a person with autism rather than autistic person, it doesn't confine them to this stereotype. So I have always said person with autism or person on the spectrum and out of habit, I continue to do that. Mm -hmm. But what I've learned um, from people like yourself is that, well, it's okay to say autistic person And I'd love to get your insight into why is that? Because there will be professionals who are listening in as well and there will be parents who um, maybe don't understand it. Can you shed some light on what what language we should be using and how it all works? Yeah, so I understand exactly where you're coming from because I've studied certain, you know, in certain fields and also been encouraged to do the same thing. Um, now, person first language is when we say person with autism. Identity first language is when we say I am autistic. I personally am okay for an autistic person or a person with autism to choose what they want. I choose I am autistic. Now, our um, governing body for autism in Victoria, Amaze, formerly Autism Victoria, Uh, released a statement saying, based on what we're learning from autistic adults, we're changing our language to reflect 
the preferences of the autistic community, which is to use uh, identity first language. Now, the thing with, you know, you were saying the disability is a small part of the person. Oh, gosh, that's a tricky, it, it's so Again, tricky. I know. And even using the word disability, I wanted to ask, you know, is yeah. that offensive? And because, you know, I suppose disorder, you know, it's autism spectrum disorder. That's how it's currently labelled. And I suppose it just does bring up all these questions around how people in the neurodiversity movement, how you perceive this. So in the neurodiversity movement, we look at the social model of disability. And what that means is that a person, you know, for me as an autistic person, when I'm in an environment where I'm supported and accepted and valued exactly how I am, I'm not experiencing necessarily my disability. When society doesn't support a person in the way that they need to be supported, so, and this, this is right across the board for any disability, but specifically for me, if I'm in an environment where there are expectations of me to do things that are unrealistic based on being autistic, then my disability will be obvious and I will experience my disability based on the fact that I'm not being supported by society or socially. So it's not wrong to say that autistic people have a disability. But we don't, in the neurodiversity movement, we don't necessarily, we don't like disorder language. There's no functioning labels. There's no language around um, autism spectrum disorder. We don't use terms like that. We just say autism or autistic. Now, the thing with identity first language for me is that when I, when you say, um, when we say a person with autism, it sounds like they're carrying a bag around with them something that they can just drop off somewhere or get rid of or separate from themselves. Now, autism is a neurological experience. It's, you know, it is a neurotype. It's my brain. Everything about me comes from my brain. The way I process the world, the way I receive information, the way I understand things, the way I think, feel, the way my body physically response to my environment, the way I receive touch, the way I experience the sensory world, all, every single part of my being comes from my neurotype, having an autistic brain. So I'm not a person with autism. I am autistic in the same way that I'm not a person with brunetteness. I'm a brunette. I'm not a person with femaleness, I am female. I'm not a person with children, I'm a parent. Now, I know this won't work for everybody and, like I said, I'm happy for people to choose whatever they want because I don't tell people what to do. What I, what I don't agree with is when people who are not autistic tell autistic people how they should identify. That is very triggering and, and it's, you know, often offensive as well. And also when we say person with autism, it almost encourages people to believe that autism is something that we can kind of just shirk, just treat and get rid of or it will dissipate. No matter how a person ever presents in the world with a diagnosis of autism, we are lifelong autistic. It doesn't matter if we're not stimming in public. It doesn't matter how our bodies present. It doesn't matter whether we make eye contact. It doesn't matter what you see when you look at us. It doesn't matter how well we speak. It doesn't matter if we don't appear to have challenges. If we are autistic, we are autistic. It is an internal experience of being and it's a different experience of being. So when we say, I am autistic, I really encompass, you know, everything about my being. I am an autistic being. So that's how I, um, you know, identify as an autistic person and that is in line with the ND movement or the neurodiversity movement. Mm. It's so interesting because, honestly, like until quite recently, you know, within the last year or two, 
like I said, I was saying, you know, person on the spectrum. And I did think it was really offensive. I honestly thought it was offensive to say autistic. Um, So I suppose it is just this massive um, perspective shift for us too as professionals to understand that that's your preferred way of, yeah, of how you like to be spoken to and about. Um, So, yeah, it's a really interesting topic. So thank you so much for that. Well, I did have an occupational therapist contact me actually one day after reading my post about autistic children and she said, look, I'm a student in my final year of OT and I just want to let you know that it's offensive to refer to people as autistic people. And I shared with her what I've just shared with you. But see, I think that that um, being offended and, and the negative feeling that comes with the word autistic comes from... Oh, gosh, and I, and I relate to this in my early days where I didn't know I was autistic. Being a parent and not wanting my child defined by a word that has had such a horrible, negative, pathological model attached to it that is defining and is limiting in many regards. So I think that people are afraid that their children will be caged into this definition of who they are and what they're capable of based on that word and so they don't want to use the word to define their child. That's why I love the ND movement because we're just, you know, we're here and we're saying that autism is, it's okay, you know. It's not what we've thought it has been for so long. It's so much more than that. Mm. And are you finding now that there are a lot more parents who are getting diagnoses because their kids are getting diagnosed? Are you finding that? Yeah, I am. Um, It's always the dads though. It's always the dads. And, you know, I have so many mums contact me and even friends and say, oh, you know, they get it from their father. And I'll meet with families in my practice. So many times, you know, I've met with families whose children are diagnosed autistic and the mum will say, you know, jokingly, oh, they get it from their dad. Yet mum, much like me, just never stops talking, is so knowledgeable about certain topics. You know, all the clues are there. But again, referring back to our conversation before, you know, we could never have known during our time as children that we might be autistic. But, yes, a lot of parents are being diagnosed and probably not enough, probably not as many as there should be because there are a lot of undiagnosed adults. Hmm. Let's head to your work now because your work currently involves supporting autistic families. So what drove you to start work in this specific area? Um, my own suffering. And it was, it was, it was really dark coming from a really dark, what felt like powerless and hopeless place, um, as a parent. And, you know, I come from a background of working with families as an early childhood behavioral specialist, which is really interesting. Um, but I always just value the connection with the families and supporting the children. So I had that experience, also my teaching experience and early childhood experience. But being a parent was a totally different thing, totally different. It didn't matter how much training I'd had about autism. I knew nothing when my children were diagnosed, absolutely nothing. And, you know, buying into the pathology model, believing everything that was written about autism and defining my children via textbooks and seminars and workshops. And don't get me wrong, those things can be helpful. But I also because I'm an autistic person, I take things very literally and, you know, I'm a concrete thinker. So if I read autistic people lack empathy, then I'm going to believe autistic people lack empathy So I found myself in this space with my family where we were so stressed and so disconnected. I felt I could never be enough for my children. I felt so inadequate and so 
disempowered and like I just would never have as much knowledge as professionals um, and just trying to navigate everything and none of it was positive. It was always, you know, we're always chasing our tail as a family. What do we have to do next? What do we need to work on? Speech, OT, you know, just everything all the time and moving through paperwork and reading deficit-based reports and then going to support groups where everybody was talking about that and crying about that and feeling down and out. And then I was watching documentaries about the horrors of autism and, you know, (laughs) there wasn't a lot of space in our family life for positivity because we just felt like we were treading water. So, you know, coming out of that, I noticed that there weren't a lot of people talking about a positive experience of autism. And when I went looking for that, I found it in autistic adults who were writing about their lived experience, which encouraged me to be vulnerable. And this is what is not encouraged. When you're an autistic person growing up, you do everything in your power to hide what's in here and what's in here. So when you get to adulthood and you have this, you know, we don't have, you know, when you see in storybooks and there's little thought bubbles coming out of people's heads, ours needs to be like the size of the planet. Well, mine does because so many thoughts. I was encouraged by autistic adults to start writing about my experience and professionals and parents have been drawn to that and autistic people offering me solidarity and community and, you know, people are desperate for the permission to love and accept their children right now, not in 10 years when they can talk or in 20 years when they're living independently. They just need someone to tell them it's okay It's okay. Your child is incredible. They really are everything you know they are. So I work on helping parents step away from the fear and the terror and everything they believe they should be feeling and moving into the light and, you know, exposing them to a different perspective. Mm, I love that. And if the people who are listening into this podcast today haven't already checked out Christy's blog, I highly recommend it. Your words are just so touching. Honestly, every time I read it, it's just, it's amazing. I love, you have such a knack for that. It's very impressive. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's amazing. Well, we might head to the five rapid fire questions now and start to wrap things up. Um, Number one, what is one habit that parents can implement today? Uh, Connecting with your children, away from therapy, away from, you know, empty your head out and just spend time with your child and just be. Just be, just follow their lead. You know, if they're throwing balls at the wall, join in with them, connect with them, just prioritise that connection. Absolutely. Number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? What do I love about being autistic? Tell me. Let's explore. (laughs) (laughs) It won't be rapid fire, but... You have asked me. I just, you know, there are challenges, but I love my depth of feeling. My greatest challenge is also my greatest love about my brain. You know, the way I can connect with people, the way I appreciate diverse experiences, the, the way I'm drawn to all the beautiful things in the world. That's what I love about being autistic. Mm, Beautiful. Number three, what book would you recommend that all parents read? Neurotribes by Steve Silverman, for sure. I mean, if you would like the history of autism, it's in that book, definitely. Great. Number four, what is one of your top unfinished bucket list items? Travelling. Yeah, definitely travelling. I've been overseas once, going overseas twice this year. Just, yeah, yeah, really, really excited for that. Yeah, and you're heading to Singapore? I am. (laughs) And what are you speaking at? Can you tell us a bit about that? 
I'm speaking at the Asia-Pacific Autism Conference in Singapore and I'm speaking about basically what we're talking about now, so moving families out of the darkness and into the light into a new perspective of autism. Congratulations. That is awesome. And number five, if you could only offer one piece of advice to parents, what would it be? Trust your intuition. What you know about your child is true. It absolutely is true. What you know and feel about your child, who you know them to be, is true. It doesn't matter about any words that you read in books or what any professional tells you. Your child is lovable and incredible and valuable right now. I love that. Thank you. Um, And how can everyone connect with you and find out more about your work? So you can find me on Facebook at Intune Pathways or uh, on Instagram at underscore Christy Forbes or uh, my website, www.christyforbes.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Christy, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. See ya. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in today. I really hope that parts of the episode resonated with you. But more importantly, I hope that you feel inspired to take action from home base. If there is someone who you know who would benefit from this podcast, please share it with them. Now, I love connecting with you all. So if you head on over to Facebook and Instagram, you can find me there. All you have to do is search Homebase Hope. Now, if you subscribe to this podcast by heading to iTunes and hitting the subscribe button, every fortnight you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. And if you do love the show, then please leave a five-star review because this will help more people discover us and it will help us inspire more positive change in people living on the spectrum. So until next time, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.